Hello, and welcome to The X Degree, a podcast where we delve deep into the abyss of the internet to find a strange connection between two random things. My name is Eric Stafford. Today we will be looking into a connection between hydro flasks, reusable steel water bottles often caked in stickers, and piggy banks, a way for children to learn to squirrel away their coins. Has anyone else noticed people drinking a lot more water lately? Like, don't get me wrong, I do it too. I feel like since high school, my average water intake has shot up exponentially to the point where I'm drinking probably three or four liters of water a day if I remember to. And if I don't, I'm very acutely aware of it. I mean, yeah, pee color is a huge indicator, but also my head hurts, my stomach hurts, I even have like light cold symptoms. And this increase in water is not bad at all. I try to stay active, injuries and recovery is limiting. But I also drink a bit too much caffeine that supposes a significant amount of water out of me that I need to replenish. But also growing up in the desert-like environment of Southern California, I was always chugging water in summers, especially with sports practices and games. Seriously, my high school football team would only cancel practice if it was above 115 degrees Fahrenheit, not taking into account the fact that we played on artificial turf with those little black rubber pellets, which shot the temperature up 15 to 20 degrees more. No wonder I walked around school with a gallon of water every day. And in college, my water intake stayed high. One, from still playing football, but also from staying active and hiking after. And now I feel like I always have my trusted BBW with me. My big black water bottle. I've had my reusable 40-ounce bottle made by Hydroflask for so many years, it's honestly a miracle that it's still alive. Seriously, the amount of dents and scrapes and gashes I've given it should have broken the vacuum seal ages ago. But I've only had to replace the lids a couple times which is a testament to Hydroflask as a manufacturer. Founded in 2009 in Bend, Oregon, Hydroflask was a local staple and sold around the high desert in Ski Town until the founders, a couple, broke up and sold their shares. The company was then bought and rebranded until they were purchased by Helen of Troy Limited in February of 2016, coincidentally around the exact time that I purchased my bottle. Now today, Hydroflask occupies the water bottle and food storage products market, and is manufactured in China, using a double-wall vacuum insulation that keeps the contents either hot or cold. And as I'm looking into it more, apparently there's this thing called Viesio Visco girl subculture thing that made Hydroflask like really popular in 2019-2020. I honestly have no idea what the hell this is, and every day is a constant reminder that I'm no longer part of the culture-generating generation, and me and my other late millennial peers are slowly seeping into the background of irrelevance and will be forgotten and overshadowed by all things new, hip, and young. But hey, at least my Hydroflask has a ton of cool stickers on it. But because it's a cool name and I always love learning who actually owns companies I love and use, let's look at Helena Troy Limited, a publicly traded design and marketing company covering homeware, health, and beauty products. They began operations in 1968 in El Paso, Texas, in wigs and other hair salon products. Over the years, they have purchased OXO Kitchen Tools, Pure Water Products, Honeywell, Vicks, Brute, and Revlon. And of course, as a large multinational company, they are operationally headquartered in El Paso, but have their official headquarters in Bermuda for taxes. But other than the fun world of looking into corporate parent companies that we love to do on this show, I also wanted to follow Head of Detroit Limited to look at well, Helen of Troy, the face that launched a thousand ships. Depending on who you learn the story from, either a damsel in distress kidnapped by a guy in a silly hat, or a floozy who left a great king for a guy in a silly hat. Either way you read it, the stories, Paris is a douche. But let's do a quick recap of the Trojan War, because, 
Why not? I love me some history epics. A long time ago, in a far-off land called Turkey, there lived a prince named Paris, who, for some reason, three goddesses deemed worthy to hash out an argument for them. So one day, Athena, Hera, and Aphrodite appeared to Paris and asked him which one was the most beautiful. And of course, the goddesses being Greek gods, they were petty and promised Paris rewards for telling them that they were the prettiest. And so when Paris named Aphrodite the most beautiful, she promised him the most beautiful woman in the world. Unfortunately for Paris, the most beautiful woman in the world was Helen, the wife of King Menelaus of Sparta, and who had a large political apparatus around her for being the most beautiful woman. Helen had previously been abducted by the hero Theseus, the Minotaur Slayer, and her dad, Tyndareus, was not ready to have this happen again. So when Helen was of marrying age, there was a competition of gifts of who would take her hand in marriage. But because he feared retaliation and all-out war over his decision, Tyndareus enlisted the wise-ass Odysseus to help him solve the problem of picking a husband without war. So a pact was made. All the suitors had to swear an oath to the others present that they had to protect and defend whoever was chosen because of how hot Helen was. Kind of... Weirdly, everyone accepted this, and Menelaus was chosen as the husband. I kind of look at this as like all the treaties that were made before World War I. Once Archduke Ferdinand was killed by the Serbian assassin, everyone immediately rushed to his side because of an agreement that they had already made, and suddenly we had an all-out war. So, when either Paris kidnapped Helen or she ran away with him, the oath of Tyndarius kicked off, and suddenly there were thousands of Greeks sailing for Paris's home of Troy to take Helen back. What followed was an all-out 10-year war at the walls of Troy, with gods fighting their own quarrels. I mean, guess which side Athena and Hera chose to be in battle. And Greek heroes bickering like children, and a lot of gay undertones. The campaign of the final and crucial battles of the war are told in the Iliad, where some of the best fight scenes take place. Personally, I love the stories and fights Ajax takes part in. Ajax, and of course... Homer has to make it confusing because there's two. So this is Ajax the Great, not the lesser. Ajax is routinely described as a freaking hulk of a man, capable of hurling boulders at his enemies. Ajax notably has several large duels with the Trojan hero Hector, one lasting all day and the other literally atop burning boats, where there are images of Ajax leaping from boat to boat, impaling Trojans on his spear and holding the ships single-handedly. Unfortunately for Ajax, his story ends pretty crappily. After Achilles is killed by Paris, being a little bitch who needs some help from the gods, there is a com competition between Ajax and Odysseus for who will get Achilles' armor. Odysseus wins because Odysseus is kind of a dick, and in grief, Ajax flies into a wild rage and ends up committing suicide. The rest of the story of Troy involves a wooden horse, and then Odysseus' own 10-year trip home, and several plays about the tragedies that belie the other heroes when they return home. All of that for one woman. But let's go back to Ajax, the man literally able to hurl rocks, and seems like he was playing the Trojan War on easy mode. My ancient literature course professor in college talked about this theory used in Homeric epics called kleos, meaning eternal glory and reverence. It's at the heart of the Iliad in terms of Achilles' character arc, going out in such a blaze of glory that you are revered for all eternity and are in a way immortal. And obviously, Achilles and Odysseus have achieved this chaos, but in a way, so has Ajax, but as a cleaning product. 
But unfortunately, we were only going to use Ajax's Kleos to hop to another figure in our popular cleaning culture because Ajax the product was Colgate Palmolive's response in 1962 to Procter & Gamble's 1958 smash hit, Mr. Clean. Mr. Clean is the mascot for and the name brand for the all-purpose cleaning products. That has a kind of interesting history. Like we saw before, Mr. Clean has been around since 1958, and in advertisements was originally played by a live-action actor. But today, Mr. Clean is a cartoon that in one Super Bowl was pretty over-sexualized. And in his years as a mascot, he's been confused as a genie because he's bald and has a single gold earring. His first name is technically Veritably, and he has like a full song jingle that I will not subject you guys to here. But like most mascots and products, Mr. Clean is known all around the world as different names. I'm kind of reminded of Mr. Sparkle from The Simpsons. In Spain, he is Don Limpio, Meister Proper in Germany, Mr. Proper in most of Eastern Europe, China, and Scandinavia. And in the UK and Ireland, the product is sold under the name Flash, but without the mascot of Mr. Clean. And it's even cooler because the advertisements use a spoof of a Queen song. But unfortunately, it's kind of one of their weirdest songs. The song Flash by Queen was the theme song for the 1980 movie Flash Gordon. And again, it's a weird, weird, weird song for an even weirder movie. Originally offered to be directed by George Lucas, who took the turn down as an inspiration to direct Star Wars in 1977, Flash Gordon is now a campy cult classic about American football star, but I mean he's a jet, so I guess kinda, who is roped into stopping an evil alien emperor from destroying Earth. And cue the wild sci-fi cliche names and bad sets and costumes, and you pretty much have it all summed up. Plus, the entire soundtrack was by Queen. And in another sci-fi trope, there was a tribe of dwarf characters, at least in the inspirational comics, and apparently briefly in the film. I've actually never seen it. Notably played by the actors Deep Roy and Kenny Baker. Most people would recognize Deep Roy as the Oompa Loompas from Tim Burton's rendition of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, but he also shares a supporting role to Kenny Baker, who was the main pilot, or I guess you could say puppeteer, of R2-D2. Yeah, in the Star Wars movies, even the new ones, R2-D2 isn't a remote control droid. There's a dwarf in him piloting his moves and making his head spin. Again, in the most recent trilogy, too, that's, I think that's just super cool. Deep Roy and Kenny Baker were also Ewoks in Return of the Jedi, along with Warwick Davis and several other notable dwarf actors namely Jack Purvis, Mike Edmonds, Malcolm Dixon, Debbie Lee Carrington, and Tony Cox. On the IMDb page for Return of the Jedi, there are 73 credit roles for Ewoks, including the named ones that, of course, Star Wars nerds have figured out. And all, if not most, of these Ewoks were actually portrayed by dwarf actors, which makes sense. Ewoks are about three or four feet tall, and from what I can find, all of the Ewoks not played by adult actors were played by children. Which got me thinking of another film that seemed to be a common role for many dwarf actors. The Munchkins in The Wizard of Oz. The generally agreed upon final tally of actors who played Munchkins is 122, with about 12 or 14 child actors rounding up the cast. Back then, you know, paying people and giving them credit was kind of a, uh, it was kind of an aside thing. 
And everywhere I look, I found nothing but stories about dwarf orgies, crazed drug parties, and sexual assaults of other dwarf actors, and even of Judy Garland, surrounding the truly astounding number of actors that they got to be in this film. And while this seems like the stories we have all heard, especially about little people, there always seems to be an impish, hedonistic, immature, and impulsive cliche for dwarves and dwarf actors. In popular culture today, Wee Man from Jackass kind of embodies this, Mini-Me from Austin Powers, even Tyrion in Game of Thrones is seen as conniving and a lustful monster, but he actually isn't. And in a New Yorker article I found by Matt Weinstein, many of these stories about the Munchkins are totally debunked. And a closer look into how many of these actors got to MGM and cast as Munchkins is really explored in a... It's very surprising. When the film was being produced in 1938, many of the actors who played Munchkins were part of traveling dwarf troops, circuses, and vaudeville acts. Most were a part of the troupe Singer's Midgets. And I... And not going to use that term ever again here. And here is where a lot of the sticky ethical questions arise, because many of these people were sold into these troops as children, but some joined on their own volition. And throughout history, there are infinite stories of people exploiting dwarves for comedy and entertainment purposes, but also many have had lucrative careers doing this work. Obviously, you know, as an exceptionally tall person, I can't even begin to imagine the life as a dwarf. And honestly, I have no place to. How others live their lives is up to them and not my place to intervene. But just out of curiosity, and because I am ultimately using this as a stepping stone to get to piggy banks and out of this ethical dilemma, I was curious about some of the historical figures in dwarf celebrity, which led me to Commodore Nutt and General Tom Thumb. Charles Sherwood Stratton was born on January 4th, 1838. And by the time he turned 21, he only stood two feet, 10 inches. At age five, Stratton began touring with the notorious huckster and novelty peddler P.T. Barnum. Early on, Stratton quickly learned acting and comedy and began to draw massive crowds on tour with Barnum, where he began to perform under the name General Tom Thumb, even performing in front of Queen Victoria in 1844. As Stratton's career continued, his clout as an actor, singer, and dancer gained him a serious reputation as a professional entertainer, and Barnum expanded his reach past just the freak show exhibit of a dwarf. Closely behind Stratton followed George Washington Morrison Nutt, who was hired by Barnum to join his American Museum in 1861. We'll get back to the museum in a minute. Nutt began his entertainment career in a New England circus. In 1861, P.T. Barnum visited the circus and was disgusted at the appalling conditions Nutt was living in. He hired Nutt and his brother at the age of 13. The contract they signed mandated that Barnum not only employ the Nut Boys, but also clothe, feed, and educate them, to which Barnum eagerly agreed, and by the end of their first five years of their contract, both boys were earning $30 a week, now a little over $1,000, plus 10% of all sales of their related merchandising. Nut fell deeply in love with another Barnum employee, Laviana Warren, but unfortunately for him, she was in love with Charles Stratton. General Tom Thumb. The wedding between Laviana and Stratton took place on February 10th, 1863, and Barnum made Nutt stand in as the best man, which is kind of a dick move. And to add to Nutt's torture, the wedding party then toured the world per Barnum's MO. When the party returned to the U.S. in 1872, they were all exceedingly wealthy, 
But soon after, Nutt and Barnum agreed to head in separate directions, and Nutt traveled west, performing in theater troops on the West Coast until his death in 1881. But now I want to turn to the mastermind behind these two men's careers, Phineas Taylor Barnum, the Prince of Humbugs. Growing up in Connecticut in the early 1800s, Barnum had several odd jobs as a young man, from auctioning books to real estate speculation to running the state lottery, and even starting a newspaper in 1829 called The Herald of Freedom. In 1835, he began his sideshow career in New York when he purchased a blind and mostly paralyzed former slave named Joyce Heth whom another huckster was touting as the 161-year-old nurse of George Washington. Yep, P.T. Barnum literally bought a person. And in a kind of a fucked up way, he made it legal because New York had already abolished slavery. But he technically leased the woman until she died. And after which he publicly hosted an autopsy of her. Do you guys hate this guy yet? Because I kind of do. In 1841, he purchased Scudder's American Museum, a menagerie and spectacle piece where he rotated live acts such as dwarves, like Stratton and Nut, people with giantism, stuffed exotic animals, miniatures of cities, magicians, and a rooftop garden with hot air balloon rides. In 1842, his first credited hoax, the Fiji Mermaid, was on display. It was a fake taxidermy skeleton of a monkey with the lower half of a fish. And notably, he promoted tours of the Swedish opera singer Jenny Lind. And when he was 60, he opened P.T. Barnum's Grand Traveling Museum, Menagerie, Caravan, and Hippodrome, the first circus to utilize the rail system to travel. He soon merged with James Bailey and James L. Hutchinson to form Barnum and Bailey's Circus. And amid all of that, he went into politics. He was elected to the Connecticut State Legislature at the age of 55, and I guess in a mark in the decent person column for him, he campaigned actively for the ratification of the 13th Amendment, abolishing slavery. But then he voted for banning contraception. I mean, this dude has a lot going on. And I feel like we all remember him now as the either the greatest showman or the greatest bullshitter. Although there is literally no proof of it, he is commonly credited with the adage, there's a sucker born every minute. And after even a little dip into his life, it doesn't seem like it would be far from the truth for him. But nowadays, he's used as a caricature of the huckster showman in a, with a thinly gilded circus show and that rips people off. And one of my first introductions to this cliche was the character P.T. Flea from the 1998 Pixar film A Bug's Life. P.T. Flea is the quintessential version of this Barnum parody. He's a literal flea who peddles a traveling circus of, quote, freak show bugs, usually against their will, and is just generally a dick. But he is voiced by the perennial Pixar voice actor, John Ratzenberger. Quickly, this is just kind of like a fun aside connection. John Ratzenberger and P.T. Barnum have connections to Bridgeport, Connecticut. Ratzenberger was born there, and Barnum lived his evening years of his life there. All right, back to our journey. Rasenberger is most known for playing Cliff Clavin on Cheers, but he is notably for us voiced a character in each of Pixar's first 22 films, and his first one was Ham the Piggy Bank in Toy Story. While the history of ancient money boxes dates back to the 2nd century BCE and have shown up in places like Asia Minor, Pompeii, and the ancient Roman Empire, pig-shaped money boxes have been found as far back as the 12th century in Java, in the Majahapa Empire, and they are adorable, typically made out of terracotta. 
but in English, the term piggy bank didn't really arrive until the 1940s, and there's no clear origin to the phrase or the object. But there is a theory that links piggy banks to a German folk belief that pigs were symbols of good fortune. And there are German piggy banks dating back to the 13th century. Regardless of where they came from and why, they are ubiquitous now in childhood rooms across the world. Well, there it is. A heroic and sideshowy trip, but that's one way you can connect the Hydro Flask to the piggy bank. Thank you so much for listening. Special thanks to my BBW for hanging in there all these years, my ancient classics professor in college, Star Wars for being Star Wars, the New Yorker article, The Wizard of Oz, The Last Munchkin, and The Little People Left Behind by Matt Weinstein, Arc Fake History by Sebastian Majors, episodes on Troy and Barnum, and The Enemies of Humbugs Anywhere, Wikipedia. If you want to see photos of Sexy Mr. Clean, Headless Ewoks, and P.T. Barnum's Humbuggery, we're on Instagram at to the X degree. If you want to send ideas for new connections, you can DM me there or send an email to xdegreepod at gmail.com. Also, if you guys want, please, you know, tell people about this. I mean, every podcast asks for, like, rates and reviews. I don't know. Just text it to a friend. It's fun. A tangent I wish I went down but didn't. In November of 1962, during the American Civil War, George Nutt and P.T. Barnum visited President Lincoln in the White House, who apparently left in the middle of a cabinet meeting to go greet them. Nutt proceeded to give him some smart-ass 14-year-old commentary, and Lincoln mocked him back. 1800s were weird time, man. Stay safe out there.